I'm going to throw out a few words, a few descriptors, just to kind of get a feel for what you think of these things. The first word, word is stingy, Scrooge, or a miser. Okay? So these words are kind of related, right? If you actually look up miser in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it tells you that it is a mean, grasping person. Isn't that an interesting definition? A mean, grasping person. That's what a miser is. And so we hear these words and we're like, oh yeah, that's, that's not me or not who I want to be. And, and I would pretty quickly want to articulate that I don't believe that that's who God is. He's not stingy or mean or a miser. Actually, God has some stuff to say about people who are that way. And I was reminded of that just in my own Bible reading this week. I was reading through Proverbs and I came to Proverbs 23. This one, because I was thinking about this message, kind of stood out to me. In verse 6, you don't have to follow along. I'll just read it to you. Verse 6 of Proverbs 23, it says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is what? Stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you. But in his heart, he is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. That's pretty like severe sounding, right? We hear a scripture like that. We're like, wow, that's pretty repulsive. Like the, the mental imagery and what's been kind of projected there. And as much as we want to hear something like that and distance ourselves from those labels, stingy, miser, uh, you know, a scrooge, we don't want to be associated with that. The truth is, and I want us to consider this all together tonight, the truth is that all of us can struggle with that, with, with tendencies, with leanings in that direction, with being, ultimately, I guess what I'm trying to say is selfish. Now, if you want an example of what selfishness looks like or how it materializes, I probably could or should invite you over to our home, okay? The Rachel household. Because, you see, what happens is our kids are not very good at disguising or masking or hiding their selfishness yet. And so what that means is if you're in our house for a little while, before too long, you're going to hear projected in a loud voice statements like this. That's mine. Or, that's not fair. Any other parents saying amen tonight, okay, right? So, you hear these things, and, and what, my parent, what my children are really doing is simply reflecting the selfish tendencies that we, as their parents, Liz and I, have become either better at masking or by God's grace are actually growing in, right? They're just projecting the selfish tendencies that we all have. I don't feel like I had to teach my kids to do those sort of things. So what is it that leans us this direction? Why do we tend to be grasping people? Going back to that definition of being a miser, why do we want to grasp onto things? Is it fear perhaps? Are we afraid that we're not going to have enough? And so we feel like we're going to grasp and accumulate as much as possible to get like a security blanket around us in case, you know, disaster happens or whatever. Maybe that's one of the reasons that we kind of get clingy with the things that we're given or the things that we have. Perhaps it's greed. Maybe there's part of us that greedily wants to hoard and is never satisfied, is never going to have enough. We just want to accumulate more for the sake of having more. That may be true. Maybe another possibility is this idea of self-preservation. 
Is it just our human instinct to look out for number one, ourselves? Now, to that statement, I would actually want to stop and argue and say, well, that isn't what a true human could or should look like. Because if we read into the Bible, if we read into the life of Jesus, what we see is that Jesus lived a life that showed us what it looks like to be truly human. He showed us what it looks like to be a human without sin. And a human without sin is the exact opposite of a grasping person. It's actually somebody who releases and gives and sacrifices. So Jesus showed us what it looks like to be human. So to be human doesn't mean to be a grasping person. This is actually highlighted in our passage for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So I'm going to ask you guys, if you have a Bible, to turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we actually have a few around the room, which you're welcome to grab one of those and read along with us. Um, or I'll read it. You can hear it. There's always the Bible app on your phone. It's just good if you can read along with us. I feel like that kind of helps as we're going along. So 2 Corinthians 8 is where we're going today. And we'll be in 2 Corinthians a lot tonight. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let me give us a little bit of context for what we're reading because what you're going to see here is we're going to start in verse 8 and it says, I say this not as a command. Now what's the this that we're talking about here? Let's get a bit of context here. So contextually, what we know is that this is a letter that's been written by a guy named Paul who's travelled around the Roman Empire evangelising, telling people about Jesus and then getting those people together and starting churches, okay? So Paul has been going around doing this all throughout the Roman Empire. One of those churches is a church in a town called Corinth. And so this is him writing back to those friends and saying, hey guys, just checking in on you, okay? Encouraging them, exhorting them. So that's part of what this letter is. And we can look at that and we're like, okay, it's just a letter from this guy to these guys. But we've got to also understand that God was inspiring Paul to write this. So not only is this a letter from Paul to the Corinthians, it's also God's words for us, okay? So it's both of those things. Now, what Paul is specifically talking about here is these Corinthians, the the church in Corinth has said, hey, we want to be a part of being generous to the church in Jerusalem. You see, the church in Jerusalem, from what we can gather contextually, was really struggling. They were in a time of persecution and poverty. And so these other churches throughout the empire were saying, hey, let's send aid back to these guys. And the Corinthians had said to Paul, yep, we want to be a part of that. But what we can also gather from this this chapter and the chapters that surround this is that that was starting that, that want, that desire to be involved was starting to wane. And, and Paul gets a sense of that. He's like, okay, I, I think you guys are kind of dropping off on what you said that you wanted to do in, in being a part of this. And so what Paul does is he highlights the generosity of the other churches where he's been. And he calls for the Corinthians to excel in this also. Okay? So he basically says, hey, I've been in the churches in Macedonia and this is what's going on. And man, I'd love to see this same sort of heart and generosity in you guys too. So that's the context. I know it's a lot, but that's kind of where we're jumping into this passage today. So we're going to read on. From verse 8 of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. And it says this. I say this not as a command. And this, by the way, is that encouragement to generosity. But to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, sorry, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So what's this passage talking about here? It may sound a little bit like convoluted to you. You may be like, okay, rich, poor, you know, what are we talking about here? Well, let's jump down and actually look at verse 9 a little bit more before we come back to verse 8. It's talking about Jesus becoming poor so that we, those of us who are Christians, could become rich. Is this talking about money? No, it's not talking about money. I mean, when you hear that language, rich and poor, that's typically where our mind first goes, money and possessions, right? But it's not talking about that. What it's actually talking back is echoing back to something that's already been said in 2 Corinthians, okay? So let's actually just turn back maybe a page or so to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Can you guys turn there with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going. And I want you to look at verse 21. You may have read this verse before. It's a very popular one, but it's beautiful. And I really think there is a tie between what we just read in verse 9 in chapter 8 and verse 21 in chapter 5, which we're about to read. Listen to this. It says, For our sake He, that is God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So see, what this this text is talking about here in 2 Corinthians, and what this text in 2 Corinthians, sorry, 5 and then in 8, is talking about, yes, rich and poor, but it's also talking about sin and righteousness. When it's talking about being poor, it's saying, hey, he, he became rich, he was rich and became, sorry, poor for you. Basically, he says, he's taking on your sin. He's taking on your brokenness. And when he became uh, sorry, poor, so that you become rich. That is Christ's righteousness that was given to us. We talked about this a few weeks ago, talking about how we receive when we believe in God. We don't just receive forgiveness of our sins. We also get the righteousness of Christ on us. We get the richness of Christ given to us. So I, I asked the question earlier, why, why do we struggle with being grasping people? Why do we lean that way towards being grasping people and the answer I think ultimately isn't fear it isn't like a greed more than anything if you want to just give a simple answer it's sin sin has distorted the human heart from being selfless like Christ to being selfish like us you don't have to look far for examples we can see selfishness in our own life and we can see selflessness in the life of Jesus and so There is good news in all of this, and that's wrapped up right here in this text. The gospel, which by the way means good news, is that Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. Jesus offers us both freedom from sin and an example of generosity. We get all of this stuff from Jesus. And so if we want to know what it looks like to be generous, we don't have to look very far. We can look straight at Jesus. So when 2 Corinthians 5 states in those uncertain terms what Jesus has done for us, we can also know that that is echoed further on here, like we've said, in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. And in 2, sorry, chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is basically, I think at this moment, being led by God to articulate in a very practical sense what it looks like in the Christian life to to kind of get down to the practicalities, to to the nitty-gritty, if you would, of life. 
He doesn't come to the Corinthians and say, hey guys, you've said that you want to be generous, so you better follow through on that. Like, keep your word. God tells us to be people who keep our word, you better go ahead and keep your word. Now, look at what he says in verse 8. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He's like saying, hey, I want to stir up your love and your affection to generosity. I want you to be generous. But the reason that I want you to be generous is not because you ought to be generous. It's not because, you know, God's word tells us that we should be paying a tithe. That's another thing that he could have said. He could have come to them and said, hey, guys, hey, there's this biblical principle where you take a portion of all that God gives you. And why don't we put that ahead, give that to the church in Jerusalem? He doesn't come and say either of these things. What does he do? In verse 9, he points a beeline straight back to the cross. He goes right back to the gospel. You see, the gospel, who Christ is and what he's done for us, is the fuel for generosity. I think I'm kind of talking in circles here. Basically, that's what I'm trying to say. The gospel is the fuel for generosity. So if we're struggling, like these guys were, to be generous, if we look at our lives and we're like, wow, I'm really, I don't know if I'm being very generous or my heart's not feeling like being kind or giving or loving in this moment, what we can do is go back to the fuel station, if it were, you know, if you want to use that example, and fill our tanks again with that generosity and love of the gospel. As we reflect on who God is, what He's done for us, it's like our fuel tank of generosity is getting pumped full again. And then we're able to go and engage in the world in the way that God's called us to. God knows that two things happen. We quickly forget His generosity. It's just that tendency to quickly forget all that He's done. But He also knows that generosity is good for us. That's why there's scriptures that tell us things like this. It's better to give than to receive. Remember, God's kingdom often is built on these upside-down principles where you've got things that the Bible tells us over and over, different things, like it's better to give than receive. Now, if you stop and think about it, you're like, really? Like, I like to receive. Like, receiving's good. Or other statements we hear in the Bible like, uh, the last shall be first. And you're like, no, usually the first is first, right? So... There's all of these things in God's economy that seem to be upside down. Even what we just read, it said that Christ became poor so that we could be rich. Again, we're like, okay, this seems like to be uh, counterintuitive what God's telling us. And there's another truth here in this passage that's about to pop out, the next section we're about to read, that basically is saying that when we, if we want to gather, if we want to harvest much, that we must give everything away. It's basically saying, hey, if you want to receive, if you want to have a harvest, you've got to give away. You've got to sow and give give away. Let's look at this. If we go further down, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6 is where we're going to go. Now, I would encourage you, if you're interested in your own time, to read through some of the rest of this. It talks through some of this giving and why they're giving and Titus and his role in all of this. But what I like about verse 6, which we're about to read is that Paul kind of brings it down to a single thought. And I think this is good for me, because I I like people to be like, okay, here's basically, here's the bottom line. This is what I'm trying to say. And so he says that exactly, verse 6. The point is this. Isn't that a great way to start a verse? The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Now, I know that most of you are not farmers, even though we live in Kintore, where we actually have tractors that drive down the roads, right? Which is a little crazy. Um, that was one of the things that really freaked me out when I first came here. <laughs> I'm like, wow, there's a tractor taking up the whole road. Um, we live in an agricultural area, but most of us are not farmers. So we hear this language, and it may be a little bit foreign to us. But basically what it's saying is, hey, you've got to plant if you want to harvest. It's basically saying, give away if you want to see things come back to you. And, and not just back to you, but returned with, with a harvest, with more than what you actually sowed with. What's being implied is this almost this sense of, hey, why don't you test God out in this? Give God a chance and see what He does with it. If you, if you give away, see what He does. Because He's going to actually probably, what you're going to find is that He's going to give back more than what you started with. This actually should or could remind us of Malachi chapter 3. I don't know if you're familiar with Malachi 3.10. But it's an Old Testament passage right at the end of the Old Testament. And what we see in Malachi 3.10 is that the Israelites who have been commanded, hey, you're meant to keep this tithe aside for the temple and for God's work and for the priests. God comes and speaks to them through a prophet in Malachi 3.10. I'll read it for you. And says to them, bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Now think about the language there. God's saying, test me. Hey, try this out. You guys should check this out. Like, if you give, if you sow, watch and see what God's going to do. He's going to open the floodgates of heaven. Now, if you read back further into that passage on Malachi 3, what's interesting is that God says to the people that when they don't give, when they don't contribute, when they don't sow into his kingdom, that it's actually like they're robbing him. And you're like, robbing him? That's kind of strong language. You're like, why would he say that? Well, he's robbing them because the truth is, and the, the reality that the Bible paints for those of us who believe its words to be true, is that everything we have is God's. Everything we have is God's. Now, this is where it's easy for us, as Christians especially, to be like, yeah, that, that's true. I believe that. Here, in our heads. But when it comes to our hearts believing and our hands obeying and actually acting like that, wow, that's, that's a lot harder, right? Everything we have is God's. I was, I was trying to think of a way to picture this. And so I'm going to tell you a silly story. Imagine with me that I have a fish tank. I don't have a fish tank. But imagine that I do have a fish tank. I own the fish tank. And inside the fish tank, I create a beautiful aquatic experience. I put in rocks on the bottom of the, the fish tank. And then I also put in some of those plants and, and, and one of those water filtration systems and water, of course, and uh, maybe one of those chests that opens and lets the bubbles go out. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So I make a beautiful environment for my fish. I own the fish tank and all that's in it. And then I go and purchase a fish and I place him in the tank. And then I also start to feed that fish. Now, the fish would probably never, ever, ever acknowledge the truth or the reality, but it is true that everything about that fish is owned by me. It swims, it eats, it lives, it breathes all that is mine. 
And that's the best way that I can try and start to picture our lives and who we are in God. We live and move and have our being, as the scriptures say, in Him. There's nothing that we have, even the, the, the breath in our lungs. We sing songs about this, right? It's your breath in your, our lungs. But what that really means is everything is God's. Everything. And like I said, I think we're very quick to, as Christians, say, yep, good, got it. But man, when it comes to our hearts and our hands living like that's true, that's a lot harder of a reality. You see, if everything we have is God, what that means is that we are not owners. We are, in fact, stewards. What's a steward? A steward is a caretaker, a custodian, or a supervisor. We're given charge over something that ultimately is not ours. And the point is that we're all stewards. We may be perhaps a bad steward or a good steward with what God's given us, but we're all stewards. Now you may be sitting here and you're thinking, well, I don't have much to steward. You, you don't know my life, Holly. Maybe you're in high school and you're like, I don't have a lot to steward. Maybe you don't have a lot of things going on in your life. And you're like, yeah, I just don't think I have a lot to steward. This probably doesn't really apply to me. But the truth is we all actually have a lot that we steward. Let me just give you a couple of suggestions on things that we steward. Our time. We all have time. It's something that we're gifted with, at least while there's breath in our lungs, and how are we using it? Our body and our health is something that we are called to steward. When it's gone, man, life can get really tough. Your relationships are something that you're called to steward. Your work. Yes, the obvious answer, your finances. But stewardship is about much, much more than finances, by the way. Your home, whether you rent or if you own, you are called to steward that. Your other possessions. I don't know what you have. If you have vehicles, if you have tools, if you have, uh, I don't know, appliances, anything you have. It's a toy. It's a blessing from God. And something that you're called to steward. But it doesn't just mean physical things. There's other things that we're called to steward. Our talents and our giftings. How has God wired you? If you've got a skill set or something that you've got that's unique to you, are you using that for God and for His kingdom and for His glory? Here's an interesting one. We also steward our suffering. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go through a hard moment in your life, you can either kind of keep that close and to yourself and just suffer through it and it's hard, yeah? Or in time, perhaps allow God to use that thing so that you actually have a platform to speak to somebody or to engage somebody else who's going through something hard. We've got stewardship all across. There's so many, and this is just, I really think this, is, this list is scratching the surface on the things that we are given stewardship of. And so the question is, are we going to invest these things for God's kingdom or are we going to grasp at them selfishly and try and keep them to ourselves? A heart that is steadily reflecting on the gospel will result in a life that is stewarded well. Let me say that again. A heart that is reflecting steadily on the gospel, keeping our eyes on Christ and who He is, what He's done, will result in a life that is stewarded well.
You cannot behold God's grace, all that he's done for you, and not be generous, not be a good user of the things that he's blessed you with. And this is where I've got to like hit pause on the message for a moment. Because at this moment, you may be thinking, whoa, yeah, there's probably 101 areas where I could improve on this. But I have to say, in some ways, standing here this afternoon, this evening, whatever it is, I, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir of sorts. Because Liz and I have walked into this church and into this church family, and we feel like we've been so blessed by the generosity of this church. I'm not just saying that. I really mean that. We feel like we've been schooled in some ways on what generosity could and should look like. So all that to say that I, I, wanna, I want you guys to not hear, hey, you guys, we all stink at this. We better get better. It's more a message of this is already happening. How can we see it grow more? Like I see pockets and moments of generosity amongst our church family. Like let's, let's speak life onto that and ask God to continue to bless that and, and encourage it to grow. Does that make sense? Are you with me in that? And so don't hear this as like a doom and gloom. Hey, this is very broken. We've got to fix this. No, it's more of God's at work. Let's see it happen more. Let's see God continue to grow all of us in generosity. So how do we actually go about doing that? What does that mean in a practical sense? I love coming down to saying, okay, what, what does this actually mean for our lives? Well, obviously, I think I'm a broken record on this by now. Obviously, this means keeping our eyes on Jesus, right? Like, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. If we want to be generous, keeping our eyes on Him is the fuel source, as we've said, for doing that. But outside of that, there are actually some practical things added here into the Scripture right after where we left off. Look at verse 7 with me. We'll read verse 7 and 8 together. It says this. Each one must give as he is made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace amount to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As we read these verses, there's a few things that stand out. There's some very practical do's and don'ts here. One of the don'ts is don't give reluctantly. As in, if you feel forced to do it, don't do it. Like, that's silly. It also says don't give under compulsion. It's kind of the same idea. Don't, don't let it be reluctant or under compulsion. Don't feel forced like you have to give to try and impress God or impress people. That's not what this is about. What it tells us to do is to decide in our heart, or some translations say mind. We need to decide in our heart and mind. We can reflect and stop and think. And then it also says, give cheerfully. So we're meant to pause. We're meant to consider what we're doing. We're also meant to do it out of a place of joy. Wow, I get to do this. Not, I have to do this. Verse 8 is actually interesting because it kind of switches out of this practical do's and don'ts mo moment to actually saying, hey, and when you do it, God's got you covered. Like, you don't need to worry. I don't know if you noticed in verse 8, uh, sorry, verse 9 there. Um, sorry, I'll say this again. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Basically, don't worry once you start being generous, once God's giving you grace to know what that's meant to look like. Don't worry, God's got you covered. 
He's going to take care of all of your needs. This is actually continued on in verse 10 again. If you read verse 10 with me, it says this. He who supplies, that's God, seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. These scriptures are really encouraging because they're basically saying as you are generous, as you give and as you steward well and you're the person that God's calling you to be, just know that God is able to supply all of your needs. He's, he's, he'll supply seed, seed to you. He'll look after you. He'll, he'll help you be the person that He's called you to be and to have all that you need. And there's also this idea of kind of increasing as we steward well. He'll supply seed to the sower. So as we sow, as we give of what God's given us, He's going to allow and continue to look after us. The, uh, the other thought in here that's interesting is that it says there at the end... Of verse 9, I don't know if you caught this. Sorry, I keep saying the wrong number. Verse 10 is what I'm talking about. Uh, it says that seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What's that bit about? Increase the harvest of your righteousness. I don't know if you, if you read that, but as I read that in my study this week, I was like, what, what's that about? Like, that kind of sounds a little bit strange. Because is this, you know, is this saying that we will see an increase in our righteousness? Because if you stop and think about it, you're like, okay, a few weeks ago, we talked about how when we have that moment of belief where we cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. And he comes and he changes us forever. In that moment, we have the righteousness of Christ given to us. So if that's true... How can our righteousness increase from that point? Like, does that make sense? So, you know, is that what, what, what's the text saying here? Like, that sounds a little bit, bit strange. So we've got to be careful when we read this. It's not you will harvest, as in you will gather and accumulate more righteousness. It's actually saying God will increase the fruits. And some translations actually put it that way. The fruits of your righteousness. You've already, you're already righteous. Day one of believing, you are made righteous in, Christ, in Christ's sight. And what we should see throughout the Christian life is more and more fruit of that righteousness as we gaze on Christ and who He is and what He's done for us. So please don't walk away this afternoon having heard that, hey, if I'm more generous, my righteousness gets, gets racked up a few more levels. God looks at me and thinks of me better. No, what it's saying here is that there will be fruit of our righteousness. And that should increase throughout our lifetimes as we live more and more surrendered to King Jesus. So practically thinking, I want to ask this question of how do we respond? As we've considered all that we've said today, We've essentially said God's generosity towards us is the fuel for a considered, well-stewarded life of generosity. So what does that mean for us as we think about response? I want to give you two thoughts. First one is this. Relish God's generosity. We've all got to do it. We've got to relish. We've got to enjoy. We've got to sit and soak in who God is and what He's done for us. And this isn't something you, you tick the box and then you move on to the next exercise. This is an everyday tick that box. 
Every moment ticks that box. When you're sitting at work and it's just annoying and hard, go back to Jesus and remind yourself of who He is and what He's done for you. When you're getting up in the morning and the alarm seems like it's gone off way too early, go to Jesus in that moment. When you're trying to get that meal together for the family at the end of the day and you're just done, go back in that moment. Relish. We can relish and we can continue and we need to continue to just relish God, relish Jesus, who He is, what He's done for us. If you're not a Christian and you're here in this room this afternoon, I'm not going to assume we're all on the same page spiritually. This is where you've got to start. Don't go to, oh, I need to be more generous and God's going to be impressed by me. No, no, no. Just come to this spot and relish God's generosity. He died for all of us while we were sinners. That's what the scriptures tell us. So if you have questions about what that means, come and talk to me at the end of the service. I'd love to have a chance to chat with you some more about what it means that Christ has died for us, that he's been generous to us. We can talk that through if you've got questions about that. All of us need to stick to this first point, relishing God's generosity. And as we do that, the second thing can be added to that. And that is to reflect on how our generosity can increase. And this is where I'm not going to stand up here today and say, okay, all of us need to give this amount of time to the church. And all of us need to be involved in this amount of activities. And we all need to have this many contact with neighbors. Or we all need to give this amount of our income to God's kingdom. Because what I really believe that God's going to do as we relish Him, as we think of His generosity to us, is that He is more than able to help us by the Holy Spirit know what we need to do, how we need to respond. So really what I'm saying to all of us is look at Jesus, listen to the Holy Spirit, and obey. Look to Jesus, listen to His Holy Spirit, and obey. And as we do that, I think he will speak to some specific things. Maybe even in our response time, as we sing a couple of songs here in a moment, maybe he'll speak to you about your time and how to better use that. Maybe he'll talk to you about your possessions or your giftings or your finances. I don't know what he'll say. But if we're looking to him and listening for his voice, I do believe that he's able to speak to us and give us the specifics of what this passage, what this thought What this idea that the gospel compels us to generosity is meant to mean for each and every one of us in the room here today. As I look at this passage, really it covers chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. I really love how Paul ends this whole section. I don't know if you caught it, but at the very end, verse 15, there's a short little verse. And basically, all he does is he points back to Jesus one more time. It's like he can't do it enough, right? And so he points back one more time. He says in verse 15, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And what the sense is that we get is that Paul himself is worshipping Jesus. He's relishing Jesus. He's doing what he's telling these guys to do. He's saying, hey guys, let's go back to Jesus And remember who he is and what he's done for us. Earlier on, we talked about how misers are people who grasp that language, grasping people. And so the thought I think that we can end our time with this afternoon is that we 
need to be people who are not grasping at the stuff around us. The only thing that we can and should be grasping to is Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you didn't consider yourself too good, too important, too holy or righteous to come to earth and to die a painful death on our behalf. Thank you that you came, that you showed us what it looks like to be selfless. And so God, we just together tonight want to gaze on your generosity. And as we do that, we want to ask you that you would, in turn, by your Holy Spirit, prompt us to know how we can be generous. Maybe in some very specific and practical ways. And so even now, as we have a time to reflect and to take communion, I pray that you would help us to just hear from you. And not just hear from you, to be willing to obey in the ways that you prompt us. Give us wisdom and grace, God. You're good. Thank you. Amen. So we're going to have a time of communion now uh, in response. And actually, it feels highly appropriate. Because I think communion, in a lot of ways, captures the generosity that we're wanting to celebrate and relish here tonight. And so over here to the side, we have uh, the juice and the bread. And for those of us who are Christians and feel like we're in a headspace and a heart space where we're ready and willing to take that, we're going to invite you in your own time over the next song or two. We've got a couple of songs. In the next song or two, you can just come over here and grab those things. And as you take that, um, feel free to take it with somebody else if you want, if you're here with a family member or, or a friend. But as you take that, just to remember the cost of Christ's generosity to us. And may that really just fill up our hearts with joy and love and, and remind us again of the fuel for living the life that God's called us to. So I would encourage you guys just in, in your own time to come and to do that. Um, also, obviously, other ways that you can respond is to just reflect on and say, okay, God, what ways are you calling me to grow in this as we've talked about? So maybe that's something you want to just pray about during this time. Of course, you can join in singing. Um, when, when you're ready, I would encourage you to stand and to sing and to worship God for who He is and what He's done. So there's several things going on in this time. Another thing that we'll just open up, um, during the second song, I'll try and make sure that Liz and I are in the back of the room if anybody wants prayer for something specific. So just want to be faithful in offering that up to the church family. So if there's something that we can be praying with you for, we'll be in the back of the room as well. So in the ways you need to, go ahead and respond. Let's not rush it. Um, and again, just think on, especially during this communion time, the generosity of God towards us.